Um, and if you're dealing with any kind of fear, um, you came to the right place today um, because there's good news from God's perspective. But I want to give you a chance to get your heart right today. Um, we do this every week, uh, just a, a minute or so of quiet time to get your heart cleared out so that you can hear from God today. So we're just going to be quiet for about a minute, and then I'll close us in prayer, and we'll jump right in. God, in the quiet of this room right now, we give you our next 30 minutes. That's a, that's a lot of life to give on a Sunday morning. People in this space and the people listening online could be doing a, no, any number of things over this next 30 minutes, but we choose to stop. We choose to put our life on pause, to keep our minds and our hearts open to a new way of thinking. God, there are people sitting in the room today that are here and feel like they don't belong because they may feel like they don't believe what others believe in this space or that they don't act like that. And God, would you just give them a big deep breath that they're not as far as they think? No matter what we believe today in this space, God, right now we give the next 30 minutes as a chance for you to speak into our lives and we'll listen. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, we are in this series um, uh, called Fearless, and um, a really interesting time in our culture um, to live. If you look throughout history, I've been doing this lately. I, I remember when I was a kid, I absolutely hated history. I didn't understand history. I didn't know why we needed to look back. All I want to do is look forward. And now I find myself, when I'm switching through channels, like stopping on the World War II documentary and realizing I'm getting old. Um, but I, I'm starting to realize the older I get that looking back, we can see some things and we can learn some things. And it's just a really a neat thing. And, and as we do that, it, it, you, it's really amazing in this culture to think about what my kids are going to be telling their grandkids, or my grandkids, their kids, what my kids are going to be telling their kids about this time in our culture. Well, I, I don't know what they're going to say for sure. I don't know exactly how it's going to be. But I can tell you there's some things that I, that I want my grandkids to know not about what happened during this culture, but how I acted, how I behaved, how I talked about politics, how I talked about the economy, how I talked about the Syrian refugees. I, what I really want my, my grandkids to know is, obviously they're going to le learn about what's going on right now at this point in history, but I want them to know, and my grandpa acted a little, well, that sounds weird. Yeah, at some point I'm going to be a grandpa. And I want them to think and know what Grandpa did as a Christian, as a human, and the way he talked and the way he led his family. And, and that's something we don't think about very often, honestly. The legacy we're leaving. And the truth is, in our lives, I think we don't think about what we're doing and we lose perspective because uncertainty is so scary. And, and if you were here last week or you've listened to the sermon online, 
you know that we talked about the fact that uncertainty in our life is absolutely unavoidable. And if your life is about being comfortable, if you have been your entire life trying to figure out how to be comfortable, you just need to know right now you're going to die sad. <laughs> because you can't ever remove uncertainty from your life. And if all you try to do is remove the things that make you feel uncertain, you will be desperate. Because it is part of life. In fact, Reese, my son, um, is sort of an anxious little dude. His, his sister is really outgoing and is, always wants to be up front. And, um, I don't know where she gets that. Um, but she, um, she loves that. And Reese is a little more hesitant, and especially with new opportunities and new things. And as a parent, it is my um, tendency to remove as much uncertainty, especially from Reese's life, as I can. I like, to be, I like for him to be able to know what he's walking into. I like for him to be able to know his teacher. I want to know all the things surrounding him, and I want him to, so that he doesn't have to feel uncertain. But the truth is, as a good parent, not as the kind of parent that makes their life easier, you know, you know those parents, that, that does really, that digs in and pretends they're being good for their kid, but what it's really about is them feeling comfortable. And as a good parent, what I'm trying to do, and I'm working really hard at this, and it's really hard as a dad who loves his son so much, is to actually let my son go into places that are uncertain. Let him try things with uncertainty involved. Dad, how do you know this is going to work out? He'll ask me. I don't, Reese. How do you know I'm not going to get bullied at school today? I don't know. I don't know. How do you know that... This is, this is the way my son thinks already. He's thinking like his dad. He's got some anxiety issues in his life. And he's already thinking, Dad, how do I know there's not going to be a tornado at school and the whole school's going to come down today? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. The truth is uncertainty in your life is unavoidable. And the sooner you recognize that, the problem is as adults, we just, maybe we grew up thinking that we could avoid uncertainty. And now as adults, that's like the way we've tried to, to define our lives is how safe can we feel? And what happens is, especially with Christians, that, that they, they get so desperate for safety and certainty that they start saying things that are stupid. They start thinking things that they're just out of their mind because of fear and uncertainty. And the truth is, we learned this last week, uncertainty is unavoidable. No matter who is president, no matter what happens with refugees, no matter how good the TSA is at the airport, no matter how good our FBI and our security, our national security is, uncertainty is unavoidable. But fear, fearfulness is a choice. If today you find yourself in fear, it didn't happen to you. You have a choice. Now, you don't have a choice to deal with uncertainty in your life, but you have a choice whether or not you're going to live in fear. And, and if that has to do with politics, does that have to do with the economy? If that has to do with what goes on in your life, if, if the bills are piling up and your fear is mounting because of the, the bills in your mailbox, if the stuff at work is getting hard and you're afraid you're going to lose your job, it, it, fear is starting to drive our culture in a way that is unhealthy. And unfortunately, Christians are following suit. You can tell by looking at Facebook. Some of the people I love most in my life, some of the Christians that I've admired most in my life have lost their mind about politics right now. And it's because they've, they've chosen fear. They've fixed their eyes on a political system. They've fixed their eyes on the next president or on bad choices in, poli in politics. 
And so they say things and they, they do things that, that just are absolutely out of character for somebody who's claiming to follow Jesus. You know, what, is, what, are the, what do you think the world thinks of? And if, if you're a Christian today, um, you probably don't have a good... Um, a really good bearing on this because you're too subjective. But if you're not a Christian and you're here, um, actually, this is a really good practice for you. I mean, if you're listening online and you're kind of kicking the tires, this is a really good practice for you. What, is, what, what do you think of or what does the world think of when they hear the, hear the word Christian in our culture? You, know, you, you think of somebody pious often. You think of um, often somebody who is um, religious, somebody who has a Jesus fish on the back of their car, you know, um, somebody who is very vocal, on Facebook, somebody who often uh, copies and pastes things that you kind of shake your head at, like, do humans really believe that? And there are, are really thoughts. Like, I think we get a lot of that in our culture right now. But there was a time in history, in the first century, where Christians weren't thought of like that. Christians were thought of as the most loving people around. If somebody was broken, if somebody was hurt, if there was somebody who needed something but had nothing to give, it was the Christians that came out to serve them. So they were thought of as loving. They were thought of as confident. Not arrogant, but like there was something about Christians in the first century that you were attracted to because like what if I could live life like that? What if I didn't have to be the smartest person in the room or the funniest person in the room or the prettiest person in the room? What if I could just be confident in who I am at the time and I didn't have to lie, I didn't have to manipulate, I didn't have to cheat, I didn't have to act like I was something I'm not? The Christians in the first century were different. And because they were different, people started to gather around them. And it is the reason you're sitting here today. Because it grew and people said, I want to be a part of what those people are doing. There was something else about the first century Christians that was amazing, and it's, it changed the world. They had a fearless attitude towards life. They began to, to die often, uh, sometimes at the hands of the Roman government, sometimes at the mouth of a lion, sometimes on crosses because of what they believed. They watched their families die. They, they, they got to see just terrible, terrible stonings and deaths because of what they believed. And somehow, throughout it all, People who watched from the outside looked at them and said, these people aren't scared to die. And even more than that, they're not scared to die, but they're also not scared to lose things while they're on the earth. You know, one of the things that's hardest for me as a parent, um, I, I believe I know where I'm going when I die. I'm not scared to die right now. Now, you put a gun to my head, I might wet my pants and change my mind. But as I stand before you right now, I'm not scared to die. I know where I'm going. I'm not even really scared of the suffering side of things. I, I'm kind of a wimp, and I'm a little worried about that, but I'm not too scared about that. But you bring my kids into the mix, you bring my wife into the mix, and all of a sudden, fear wells up in me to a point where I start wanting to get gun permits just to shoot somebody. I can get real irrational real quick if you start thinking about my kids and my wife. You can do whatever you want to to me, but man, <laughs> there's a fear that starts to rise up in me when it comes to my kids. Something happened to these first century Christians that even losing a family member, even the loss of a wife or a child did not scare them. They had no fear of death, no fear of loss. And there's a word that... that began to be um, synonymous with first century Christians. The first group of people who followed Jesus after he left. These Christians started to be known 
as people who, even but people from the outside, they were people who were faithful. You know what faithful means? It doesn't really have much to do with the kind of faith that we talk about a lot at church. Faithful means you just keep going. In the face of pain, in the face of hardship, you just keep going. These people throughout history were loving, confident, had no fear of loss, no fear of death, and they had a certain kind of faithfulness that started our movement right now. What you're involved in today hap- is, is happening because this first century group of Christians were contagious with the way they lived their life. People looked at them and said, I wish I could live like that. So, what happened to us? What's wrong with us? Because if this culture of Christians, if this culture of Christians had been transplanted and put it in the first century, I'm not sure it would have made it. Because at the very first sign of, you know how we pray now in America as Christians, God, um, it's Monday, and I, I am so sure that you're going to do this thing for me. I'm going to give you till Friday. And I'll give you till Friday to, to get me that money for my bills. And if I don't have it by Friday, I might even extend it till through Sunday. And then Monday comes, and you didn't get what you want, and you lose your faith. <laughs> when, when these Christians at this point in history were praying for things they never saw come to fruition. I want to read a piece of scripture today. Um, actually, this is a long piece of scripture, and I don't do this a lot at church because a lot of you are kind of kicking the tires on this thing. And, but I, I want to read you a, a, a piece of scripture from the book of, of Hebrews today that, honestly, I'm just going to say straight up, as I was praying for this this morning, I, I said to God, I'm, I, I'm not going to do this scripture justice. I'm not as good a preacher as this sermon is. This, this piece of scripture is one of the coolest, most well-worded, most incredibly spoken things in all of the Bible. And I'm not going to do it justice, but I'm going to try today. Hebrews is a book of the Bible. We don't know who wrote this for sure. We don't know who wrote this book of the Bible, but it was so well-written, it was so impactful, and it was so God-breathed to the people who saw it. It felt so much like God that the first century Christians passed it around and started copying it to the point where we put it and canonized it in the Bible because it became so good. But we aren't sure who wrote this. It could have been a man, it could have been a woman, it could have been Paul the Apostle, it could have been somebody that we've never even heard of before. I'm probably going to refer to the person as he just because it's a habit, but I really don't know who wrote this, and there are all kinds of of um, suggestions as to who it might be. But this person had a really good connection to God. And they say one of, the, one of the things that preachers have been misinterpreting for a long time. And I don't want to sound judgmental today, but I'm going to tell you they've been getting it wrong. And I'm going to tell you why. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 starts this way. And you've probably heard this if you've been around church. Now faith, what is faith? It's a word we use a lot. Here's, this is the Bible's definition of faith. Faith is confidence and what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. Now, that might sound stupid to you, but if you have ever had a job in your life, you have experienced faith. You have had faith. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. You go into your employer, you fill out your paperwork, and they say, you need to start Monday morning. And you don't say, well, this piece of paper says I have a $30,000 salary. I'd like to see that money right now. You don't say that, do you? You say, yes, sir, I'll be in the office Monday morning. And you work your first two weeks before you even see a paycheck, sometimes a month. You have to go through that little weird cycle. I've done that a lot. Didn't pay my bills for a whole month. And, and then 
once you get your first paycheck, you go, well, I, I got that one. So I guess I'll have faith that I'll get another one. So that's what faith is. And that's really all faith is. Faith is believing that a person or an entity will do what they say they'll do. Faith is not sitting like this and gritting your teeth and, and doing some sort of a, a fairy tale move where you try to try to believe. I try to make sure that all things come together for those who love God. I like to say that a lot because it makes me feel better. That's not what faith is. Faith is saying, I know what God said and I'm choosing to believe it. Now what's interesting is you, you might feel like that's irresponsible. But when you go in to, to get a, a, a new job, you don't even know the boss. <laughs> you don't even know this guy. And you're trusting him. You're having faith in this system. I love the writer of Hebrews. He just says, this is what it's like. You believe this entity will do what it says it will do. This is what the ancients were commended for. I love that statement. The idea of the ancients. And then then the writer goes into, in verse 13, next slide there, Tanya, the writer goes into talking about these ancient people. These are the first century Christians, the very first group of people who got this started. He says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. You know what that means? That they were born, and somebody said, you should listen to God. You should trust God. And somebody else said, why? He said, because my dad did, and God was good. Well, what should we trust God for? And what they were trusting God for at the time was that God had told Abraham that all of the world would be blessed through him, that somehow all of the world would be connected to God through him. And one person after another in this first century died before they saw that happen. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. The different kind of faith. Look, Look what they endured. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36. Uh, when, it, when you hear this, I want you to think about what would happen if this happened in our culture. What would happen to Christianity right now if this happened to our culture? Would it go away? Some face jeers. That's eh, not a big deal. That's making fun of. We get a little bit of that now. And flogging. If you were here last week, you know what flogging is. Flogging is a Roman practice where two soldiers who had been trained their whole life and were professionals would take a leather whip about eight feet long wrapped with glass and nails and sharp edges they would rip the shirt off of a prisoner they would put him around a stump where he was holding the stump like this and they would take turns ripping the flesh off of his back that's what flogging was yeah i don't want to keep going because you'd have to leave the room some of them faced jeers and flogging even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. And, and stoning was this process of, of throwing first big rocks to knock them down. And then small rocks until a person was dead. That's what stoning was. And this was such a widely used practice with Christians that it began to be synonymous with Christians. They were sawed in two. This is why we have a kid's life ministry going on right now. <laughs> Because you need to hear this. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. You know what that means? That means they had nothing in their life. They had to kill farm animals and skin them, gut them, and then wear their skin because they didn't have enough money or stuff to buy their own clothes. They were destitute, persecuted, 
and mistreated. And then he, the writer, whoever this writer is, the writer has this little phrase in Greek that the English doesn't really do justice to, but this is pretty close. His phrase is this, the world was not worthy of them. They were different. It's like the world didn't deserve people who lived like this. This is the kind of group of people that started Christianity. Can you imagine today? I mean, Christians talk about suffering in America right now, and it usually is because somebody in the local government says you can't pray in school anymore. (laughs) Can you imagine how this group of people would have thought of that issue and called that suffering? It's an amazing talk about the way the first Christians live. What it reminds me is that there was once a version of faithfulness to God. There was once a version of faithfulness to God that caused people to stand back and say, who are these people? How do I live like that? Sometimes I I read through some of this stuff and I think, man, we've come a long way as a society. Thank God we don't have to go through flogging and stoning. Thank God, Christians, if you choose Jesus, if you were baptized this Sunday, can you imagine what would happen? I just, I don't want you to think of this like a fairy tale. What, what, what would really happen if you had decided to be, become baptized and then as soon as you walked out there, you knew you're going to have to sell all your stuff because it's going to get taken away from you by the government. And everywhere you go, somebody's going to ask you, hey, did you guys go to New Life on Sunday? Did, were you baptized? Did I hear that right? Roman soldier with a sword ask you. And you have a choice. Did I or didn't I? Can you imagine this? There was once a version of faithfulness to God where there was no fear. And sometimes I think, wow, we've come a long way as a society. And other times I think, wouldn't it be good for Christians to have to live like that? Because most of us, most of us, Preacher included. Doesn't cost us anything to be a Christian. In fact, a lot of us won't even make time on Wednesday nights to be here for life groups. Think, well, I'm already giving Sunday mornings for an hour. And I got this thing to do and I got that thing to do and we fill our life with these things. It's really just about convenience. At one point in history, people looked at Christians and they said, who are these people how do we live like that how can i be the kind of person that doesn't fear death hebrews chapter 11 verse 39 he goes on the writer says this these were all commended for their faith yet none of them received what was promised since god had planned something better for us so that only together with us and the idea of made perfect, the, 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 the scripture says, together with us, they would be made perfect. And the word perfect literally means complete. Like their sacrifice, their faith, their faithfulness, going through all those things, they work together with us to tell the whole story of God. If we could get this here in Paragon, can you, can you just imagine, just for a second, even if you're not a Christian today, imagine what it would look like if just the Christians in Paragon, and they're, they're not just in this building, not just in this church, they are Christians all over Paragon that don't even come to this church. 
just the Christians in Paragon, if we were just to get together and say, for one day, we are going to live the way first, Christian, first century Christians lived. That means we are going to make God first. That means we are going to serve before we, serve before we go get our own thing. That means we are going to think about people different. We're going to talk about one day where 100% of the Christians in Paragon did that. It would change our culture for years. This group of people seemed to do it for a lifetime, and it changed the world. And somehow the writer says, we partner with this first set of Christians. In our culture today, we have a job that continues their push towards faithfulness. It's an amazing thought. And here's here's the most amazing thing as I, I wrote this. And I put this up on the screen so I make sure and say this. So these people lived before before they got to see the Bible, before they got to see the church explode. So if you were had gone as a Christian at that point, you wouldn't drive around or you wouldn't walk around and see churches popped up everywhere. You wouldn't see crosses hanging on things. You would just be this underground group of people who were wondering if it was really worth all of this. And now we can look back. We, they, they had to look forward and say, I, I believe that God is going to do something amazing in our world and there are going to be churches and there are going to be people living for God every day. Christianity is going to be out through the whole world. And they had to believe that, but they couldn't see it. The truth is they were looking forward and they were faithful. We're looking back. We're looking back after the way that God has kept Christianity, the way he has opened up churches, the way he has moved in our world. We can look through history and see people like Paul and Peter. We can look and see through even more modern history and see the people in the 16th, 17th century who came and they said, we want the Bible translated into English so the whole world can understand it. And from English, it could be translated into all the other languages. And they started dying for that. And one after another, we started seeing the momentum. And now we sit in orange pews and have the benefit of looking back and we are fearful they were looking forward and were faithful we're looking back and are fearful the writer keeps on going and he says something that you have heard before if you're a christian and uh I want to kind of translate into this in our culture today. So if you've been asleep, wake up for a minute, because I'm going to speak right to your heart, right to you today. The writer says this. He says, therefore, in light of all that, in light of the fact that the people who lived before us lived like this, and that we have sort of convenience Christianity, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that is, all these people that we can point to in the past and say, look what they did. Look how it advanced. Look how God was faithful to them. We are surrounded by this such a great cloud of witnesses. What should we do? Now now look for a second and listen to this this morning. Next slide, Tanya. What should we do? Let us hide, whine, complain, hoard our resources just in case. Put our Bibles in a drawer, build bomb shelters, purchase ammunition. Next slide. Blame the cops, blame the president, blame the teachers, blame our moms, demand our rights, build a wall, tax the rich, play it safe. Find somebody to sue, take back our country, pray Jesus returns so we don't have to suffer anymore. Do you think that's what he said? Andy Stanley would say, did I miss anybody in that? (laughs) Because this is the way we act as Christians often. 
Like somehow our role is to find somebody else to blame for the problems. Like somehow what God has called us to is to get back our country so we don't have to suffer. That's not what he says at all. Here's what he says. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, what should we do? Next slide, Tanya. Let us throw off everything that hinders. Now listen to me this morning. Something's hindering you. As we speak right now, maybe it's a way you grew up. Maybe it was a dad who used religion to beat you over the head, some of you literally. Maybe it's a grandma who manipulated you because of religion, made you feel guilty most of your life. Maybe it's not even that obvious. Maybe it's that religion and God has been so easy for you that it hadn't cost you anything. So you don't do anything with it. You just show up at church, pay your dues, do something nice every now and then, and then live like however you want to live. What is it that hinders you? He says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. There's so much pornography in this room right now. If we could see it, we would close the doors. Man, it got quiet. Because you know it. There's so many lies in our life right now that we can't even think about the next step with God because we are so wrapped in our own lies that we can't remember what we said. He says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. You know that there was a plan for your race, your life? That from the beginning of the time you were born, there was a thing for you to do. There was a person for you to be. There was a, a, a map. What is it that's hindering you from the race that God has set out? And then he says this. This is what you need to do. If you feel hindered today, if you feel hindered by sin, if you feel hindered by something else in your life, if it's maybe it's just complacency, it's just this has been easy and this is kind of the way I think of God and the way I ever think of religion. Here's what he says. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, if you're over the age of 40 right now, just look at me for a second, all right? If you're over the age of 40, listen to me. We have a responsibility to the next generation. And if you're a Christian person in here today, you, many of you, have been fixing your eyes on the wrong thing. You've been fixing your eyes on the past. Got to get back to the good old days. You've been fixing your eyes on the president. You've been fixing your eyes on a political situation. You've been fixing your eyes on terrorism. You've been fixing your eyes on the wrong thing. All of those things are important, but all of them take a back seat to Jesus Christ. And those of you who are over 40 in this place, those of you who, especially those of you who may be over 60 in this place, who feel like you've sort of spiritually retired, let me tell you, God has got a race for you you haven't finished yet. And your job is to keep those of us who are younger. I just turned 40, so I'm in this group. Those of us who are younger, those of us who are looking to the next generation, to keep us fixing our eyes on the things that matter most. Because this, fixing your eyes on the next president, 
Fixing your eyes on the refugee situation. Fixing your eyes on building a wall to keep people out. This will lead you to fearfulness. Fixing your eyes on Jesus will change your life. The pioneer that is the beginning and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. See what I mean? I, I couldn't possibly do this, this piece of scripture justice today. This is just thick. Scorning its shame. See, the idea of the cross from the very beginning, it wasn't just about the pain that the cross had. It was the shame. Jesus, as a young child, 10, 12, 13 years old, would have walked by men who were dying on a cross, hearing their groans, screams, smells, sights, for days while they died. This was something that Jesus saw as he was a child. Over and over and over again. Crucifixion, he would walk by one man after another, smell the smells, see the sights, hear the sounds, see the shame, and he walked directly into it. One of my favorite pieces of Scripture, those of you who know me well know this, my favorite pieces of Scripture is when somebody says, Jesus, why would you let this happen to you? And he stops and he goes, I didn't let this happen. I chose it. Nobody takes my life from me. I laid it down. Whew. He walked into it, fearless. And he sat down at the right hand of God, where he still sits today, watching you. Consider him who endured, who endured so much opposition from sinners, so that you, now listen to me, I'm almost done, so that you will not grow weary. Are you Are you weary? Have you lost heart? Now those of you who are under 30, under 40, it's your turn. You know that the people who changed the world in this first century, 26 to 35 years old. There were, they were people who didn't look to the next generation to save them. There were people who took it by the horns and said, I can make a difference right here right now. In fact, throughout history, every time there's been a raising up, a new revival, it's come from that group of people. It's come from a group of people who have said, I don't have to live like this anymore. I'm going to ask you today to not lose heart. I was, uh, I coached my son's basketball team yesterday. I said I would never do that again. I had a, it's hard the first time and I'm just a guy on the sidelines for, for, um, for his team. And the truth is, the year I coached Reese, he's played in this league for three years. The first year I coached him was the first year he'd ever played. And I coached, and I, I couldn't believe how hard it was. I mean, he's just a little guy, just keeping the kids going in the same direction and keeping the parents from yelling at you all at the same time was enough that I didn't even teach him any basketball. I just survived. And I thought, I will never do this again. And here's what I said to my wife. I will never judge a coach again the same way. I will never sit on the sidelines and yell at a coach or I can't believe he's not playing so-and-so or I can't believe because now I feel it. Well, that was two years ago. And last season, all I did on the sideline was complain about the coaching. Derisha. And this year, 
again. I'm not coaching. I'll never do that. Set on the sideline again. I just sat there, and I did this. A lot of you are doing this right now. Just crossed my arms and judged away. And I'd say things like this. That coach is not even looking at the game. She's looking at her phone. She doesn't even know. At one point, she called holding. It's basketball. For those of you who don't know, there's no holding. I thought she was going to call her 15-yard penalty in the basketball game. The kids are holding. They're holding. And, and, and she doesn't know much basketball. And I just sat and just complained and complained and complained. And last week, it just hit me. She needs help. So I, I sent her a text, and I said, hey, um, if there's any, anything I can do, I've done this before, you know, I'd be glad to rebound. I'd be glad to do something. I was thinking, you know, it's the right thing to do. She sent me a text back and said, that would be awesome. I won't be there this Saturday. Could you just coach the team? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. So I got off the sidelines, and I started coaching. And I had a great day, and it was fun, and it was hard. But guess who didn't judge? Guess who didn't have a bad attitude? Guess who, guess who didn't have a judgmental heart during the game? You know where I'm going with this today, right? You're on the stinking sidelines. So many of us. I'm just going to give you a chance today and ask you this question. Don't, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart with our country because you know what? <laughs> it doesn't matter who's the president. That, that's not true. It matters. But God knows and God's in charge. You know what? It's funny. Throughout history and throughout this first century especially, everybody thought the leader of the world and the leader of the country was the most important thing in all of the culture. A man named Pontius Pilate was the most popular guy at the time that Jesus was around, and he was an incredible politician, and everybody thought he was the savior of the, of the entire empire. They either hated him or they didn't like, or they liked him, but one way or the other, he was the most popular guy. He was the guy that everybody cared about and the most important person, and guess what about Pontius Pilate? You wouldn't even know who he was if it weren't for the fact that he's a footnote in the story of Jesus Christ. And today, let me tell you, I don't know who's going to be the next president of the United States but it will be a footnote in God's story. So you would be missing it if you let yourself be fearful and you missed out on the fact that God's in control, that God can be trusted. And fear is a choice. Band, you guys can come up. Paul, you've done a great job today. Thanks for your work. I want to give you a chance today to step up. And um, we don't do this every week, and if you're visiting with us, it's kind of weird, and I get that, and so well, that's part of why we don't do it every week, because we don't want you to be more weirded out than you already are at church. But I want to give you a chance today to step up. And I mean physically, literally, step up. If you're in a place in your life where you have grown complacent, where where the whole God thing has just become easy for you. Where you haven't, it hasn't cost you anything. You haven't had to do anything. You haven't really had to have any kind of commitment to this thing. I'm going to give you a chance today to step up. Even if you don't know what the next step is. I want, here's what I want you to do. Just step towards this stair 
And if you don't want to do this today, I totally get it. You don't have to do this to, to make a commitment to God. But sometimes it helps to take a physical step, lean on these stairs right here, and say, God, what do you want from me next? I want to give you a hint. This thing on Wednesday nights, we call it life groups, it's going to change your church. It's going to change lives. In fact, it's already started. And if you got to a point in your life where this, this whole thing for you is just a religion, um, this is your next step. Yeah, but John, Wednesday nights are hard for my family, and you know we just can't give up our evenings. Yeah, yeah. At least you're not being stoned. So I want to give you a chance today. Somebody just said, some of you are. <laughs> it's not what I meant. <laughs> I'm going to give you a chance today to step up. Come find me before you walk out of this building today and sign up for these life groups. Maybe that's not your next step. Maybe God has something better for you, something different for you um, in your next step. I'm going to give you a chance today, just between you and God, to step up. You can do that right here on these stairs if you want to step up just between you and God. I'm going to be back there in that corner, and you can do it right where you stand to ask God, what is it that you want from me in my life? I am going to walk forward without fear, and I am going to step, even though uncertainty is unavoidable. I will not choose fear. Would you stand up and sing with us today?